You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 75. And today we're asking the question, how are decisions to stop work made? Let's get started. Everybody, I'm David Proven, and today I'm joined by Dr. Yop Havinga, who is also a colleague of Drew and myself at the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. But before we go any further, Yop, welcome to the podcast. Can you share a little bit about yourself and uh, and some of your background? Thank you, David. It's uh, good to be here. Uh, well, so like you probably know yourself, I'm uh, a researcher at the Safety Science Innovation Lab. Uh, my background is originally in human spectrum psychology. Yeah, during my bachelor's, I was probably very uh, trained to be very experimental and quantitative. But as I uh, moved to the safety lab it, uh, and did my PhD, it became more and more qualitative research and ethnographic uh, and uh, in style. Since my PhD, I've done a little bit of uh, consultancy, largely in, in the same space of uh, yeah, trying to help organizations reflect on, on what work is like for um, people or for, yeah, within their organization. Yeah, recently I've moved back to Griffith University and the, the safety lab to uh, study this more academically and uh, reflect on those questions. Great, Yop. So I think you 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 spend a lot of time in the field. As a even as an academic researcher, you probably spend more time in the field than uh, than many many uh, safety professionals inside organisations. So today's also really exciting for the podcast because this is the first time that we're somewhat revisiting a question that we've asked before on the podcast. So in episode ten, Drew and I talked about some research that we'd co-authored with uh, Dr. David Weber and uh, Sean McGregor. And that episode was titled, What Supports and Hinders Stopping Work for Safety? And it's really exciting that the Safety of Work podcast has been around long enough to see some of the science moving forward and give us an opportunity to revisit one of these topics. So, Yop, maybe if we start by introducing the paper we're going to talk about. And uh, your paper was titled, Deciding to Stop Work or Deciding How Work is Done. And you were the lead author. Uh, your co-authors were Kim Bancroft and Drew Ray, co-host of the Safety of Work podcast. And you published the paper in the Journal of Safety Science recently. So maybe if you want to start by talking about how that research question kind of came about or, or why that topic of interest sort of popped onto your radar and you decided to research it. Yeah, so well, I, I was doing this, this big project, uh, three-month ethnography, uh, where we were studying about how safety management system processes actually influence the front line and um, yeah, how we could trace any influence of that back. And during this project, uh, so I would, yeah, I was well going out, spending time with people throughout the organization, sometime with people in the safety department, uh, sometime with uh, managers and supervisors, and sometime, some of the time, or most of the time, I was spending in the field with operational teams. One of the conversations that I overheard of, of two relatively new people in that organization was about uh, yeah how frequently you actually should stop work. They were like, oh yeah, you know, I used to feel like I should should do this work, uh, but then I realized that oh if it's you know at night, you shouldn't actually be doing this this noisy job. 
or yeah, you shouldn't stress too much about uh, a big job like that and just hand it over to the next guy. And originally when I heard it, I was like, ah, oh, this, this is not actually why I came out here. But yeah, I was taking some notes along the way and I was suddenly thinking, this is actually quite interesting. This is quite different from how we generally think about stop work decisions as these, these big events. Uh, while they're saying, oh, this is actually, you know, what a good practitioner should do. Uh, you know, stopping work when there's a better way of, of doing it. And uh, I started to reflect on what I had, had been observing so far. And I was like, this seems to be very much in line with, with what I've been observing, but hadn't really taken notice of at that point, that these people were constantly stopping work. I, I find this fascinating that the organization that you're doing this uh, embedded ethnography work with it was really interested in understanding how their safety management system impacted frontline work. So questions that we ask a lot on the Safety Work podcast, which is how the safety work influences the safety of the work. So you were three three months in the field to try to see how that safety management system had an impact or didn't have an impact and had one of those aha moments that you have when you're doing ethnographic research that goes, hey, this is a really interesting thing that I'm, I've stumbled across or I've, I've, I've uh, sometimes as a byproduct of what you were looking at. So why is stopping work? So so maybe tell us a little bit about the the broader literature on stopping work because it's it's something that I think all of our listeners would go, well, that's just an, a core part of our organization. Yeah, we tell people to stop work for safety all the time. But what does the literature say about stopping work for safety? Well, it's probably pretty close to, to the general view that you're describing. It. I think everybody agrees that it's good to stop work when it's unsafe. Uh, you know, whether you have the most behavioral-based uh, approaches to resilience engineering, to safety culture. Everybody agrees that being able to stop work when it's unsafe uh, and, you know, and having people able to just say, no, stop is a good thing. Some people might put a little bit more emphasis on trying to achieve this through procedures, while others might uh, put the emphasis a little bit more on uh, empowering people to stop work. And explore the issue further once you decided that was something you were going to focus on. Yeah, but, well, uh, with the way the research was set up, I uh, I basically had to go back to my old data because, as I described, the, the focus of the project was actually a different one, which was how safety management systems influence work, which a little bit overlaps, but it is largely a different question. But yeah, I had, had just taken notes along the way of, hey, this is something interesting. So if I run into something like this, I of course, I'm, I'm going to take notes of it. But yeah, so... After the, the research project was already done and, and the, the report delivered, I went back to my notes and, well, first went through all the, the fieldwork uh, notes that I had and was like, okay, anything that's related to a job is assigned and completed or not completed, and I marked that, captured that in a, in a kind of spreadsheet. Anything related to yeah, people not doing the job fully by themselves, getting, getting help, uh, requesting help, I noted that marked that down, and I marked down anything relating to procedures that might involve uh, the need to stop work. Then I went back through all the interviews that uh, I judged could have been relevant, so either with operators directly or um, people close to the operators, and um, and yeah, searched through them to see if anything regarding this this topic came up, whether it was specific uh, cases uh, they told me or whether it was a general statement. And yeah, first just collected everything together and uh, then you try to look for patterns in this. 
and see uh, see what what creates to a, a coherent explanation. Yeah, compare that well, or at the same time, I was going back through the literature, including your uh, paper with uh, David Weber, Dr. David Weber, and um, and you see, you know, how does this contrast to what I find? I lost you, David. And one of the other things that I really liked about your your methodology is this idea that you started with work. So you mentioned our research and listeners might go back to episode 10 and listen to what how we researched this topic. And we wanted to research the authority to stop work and we wanted to understand uh, stopping work for safety. So we did a, a lot of focus groups where we talked to operators about stopping work in a team meeting, in a meeting focus group type environment. But what I suppose that what I was reflecting on in terms of thinking of the different methodologies uh, and the approach that you took is we never actually observed a stop work decision being made as it played out, as I think you quoted in your paper from Eric Holnagel, safety being created as this kind of a dynamic event within organisations. But, but you were there on the ground actually as crews were making these stop work decisions and getting the opportunity to observe, but also then to immediately sort of question and reflect with them. So how was that experience of sort of data gathering in the moment? Yeah, well, that, that's probably what I like most about my work uh, when I'm out in the field, and that you you have really the, the chance to be surprised and uh, have to rethink your own own views. Because, uh, well, the the view that I'm largely arguing against is that uh, yeah, stop work decisions are these big significant decisions, you know, where people feel a lot of pressure to make make the decision to stop work, and uh, they probably exist. Uh, somewhere as well, but uh, there's tons of these decisions that you run into where where this turns out not to be true at all. Yeah, you kind of, which is I think part of of ethnographic work. You take people's interpretation of what happens very seriously, but at the same time you try to take a somewhat ob- objective view of what's going on, and that you say like, well, if if we say that a stop work decision is any time that uh, people hand over a job. And that's actually suddenly quite common. So you you constantly have to play with this technical definition and the interpretation uh, plus what you see and try to make them align with each other yeah, and, and make sense of, of, of it in a way that you uh, can generalize anything from it. Yeah, I really like that uh, description. And I think we're going to talk about that when we talk about the practical takeaways about something easier when it's something that we think of as part of everyday work as opposed to something hard when it's a an abnormal type of event or situation. What I also like in your paper is you actually took made the effort of defining stopping work because it's a problem in research a lot where and it's a problem in, in topics like safety culture where the authors don't necessarily take the time to define uh, what they actually mean. And, and I think your definition of stopping work is where an individual or a team make a decision not to finish a job at that time and with the current crew configuration. So getting getting either re- either either deferring something to another point in time or getting resources from outside the work team that they don't currently have available to them on hand. Is that sort of how you see this definition of, of stopping work, which then says, well, this must happen all the time. You know, phone a supervisor, get extra resources, do something tomorrow instead of today. This must happen all the time in operational environments. Yeah, well, in this case, I really needed to put forth a definition because else I couldn't create a contrast with uh, with the general view that, that, let's say, existed within academia or interventions around stop work versus what I was seeing. So 
I think I've I've probably been guilty myself of not fully defining uh, what I'm I'm talking about. But in this case, it, it it was really the tool that I needed to to show this contrast. And I think it's a great reflection for practitioners. Uh, and there's a really good section in this this paper, and we'll tell listeners how to get hold of it because it is currently um, not embargoed uh, with uh, with the author links, uh, and and we'll share some of those so that there might be a month or so left to be able to download this paper for free. But I think the uh, there's a really good section that you describe in there about procedures and interpretation of procedures and requirements for individuals. And it's a good reflection point for for our listeners to go, if you've got, if you're telling people in your organization to stop work for safety, do you actually tell them what you mean by that? Do you actually, like, what do you actually mean by 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 stopping work? What What do you actually want them to do? And you might find that you've said stop work for safety and you might never have actually told or had a conversation about what that actually means and what it looks like. You're spending these three months in the field. You're observing lots of work. You you and the team decide that we're going to look at stopping work. You observe all these decisions being made. And then you go away and, and analyze all of that. And so let's talk about what you found. So do you want to start by talking about you know, the things that you found in, in your research and, uh, and sort of describing what they might mean for, for organizations? Well, one, one thing that I uh, started looking at was the procedures around when the expectation was uh, for work to be stopped to yeah, really start with, with the view of uh, this is how we imagine that things happen. And I found that yeah, very rarely uh, the procedure actually led to uh, work being stopped, at least in a, in a direct sense. And we, I even saw that, yeah, so, uh, there was disagreement within frontline operators about how to interpret a certain procedure, uh, you know, whether an authorized spotter, for example, meant that somebody needed to have a certificate or just needed to be delegated on the spot. But this dif difference in interpretation between operators did not make any difference in terms of how they did the work. So in that sense, uh, it was not the rule that was dictating whether they were going to stop work there or not, or how they viewed the rule did not dictate how, whether they were going to stop work or not. And yeah, only only one case I found where a rule actually led to stopping work, which was uh, work had to be done inside a real cor corridor. And uh, there was a rule within the organization that you needed a, a spotter from the train organization to do work in a real corridor. And for this case, the operator did not even look at the procedure. He just knew this from the top of his head. And uh, yeah, I mean, as soon as he saw the job wasn't at, at the location, he said he called up the schedule and dis dispatch team and said, "Look, can't do the job. We need to plan it with a real, uh, real operator, so we can have a spotter here." So when you say procedures uh, in in your paper, some of the, you, you you sort of talk through some of those start work procedures and checklists like, you know, like the process that a, a crew will go through maybe during a pre-start where do you have this in place? Do you have this in place? Do you have this in place? And even when I suppose these are all internal requirements, yes, no. And I, I know you mentioned your paper that even when things may not be quite right, uh, that didn't necessarily mean that work was stopped uh, or changed. And it's interesting that you mentioned that hard and fast compliance rule where the boundary was with another organization or some external rule or some some law, which obviously was, you know, a really hard stopping point for the crew. But I found interesting in your in your paper where when people felt that if they weren't able to follow a procedure, 
stopping work and giving it to another crew was not actually going to solve any problems because the next crew would just have the exact same procedural problem that they've got. So they may as well just get the work done because doing it later isn't going to be any safer. It's still going to be just exactly the same work. Is that yeah, is my yeah. understanding of that right? Yeah, that's, that's completely correct. It, um, it w I didn't want to phrase it as such yet um, to not spill the beans on the next point. Huh. But indeed, it, it was very much the view that, yeah, if we try to comply or if we stop work to comply with this procedure, it's going to be exactly the same for the next for the next crew that's going to get assigned this work. Because yeah, the procedures stay the same and the conditions tend to stay the same for the next the next crew. But that's probably a good segue then to the to the next part, where uh, if we look at the decisions w where work was stopped, we see that it was very much a reflection on how work should be done or how wor work will be done. It's probably better. And in that sense, yeah, if you decide to stop work in that moment uh, for a procedure, then the question becomes, how will the work be do done in the future, which often will not change unless it can be handed over to a different team or a team with different tools, uh, with ex different information or at a different time when work might be easier or safer or less cumbersome on other people uh, to be done. Yeah, I like that uh, that hand forward point. Rather than sort of stopping work, it's it's the title. Of, I, I love the title of your paper. I don't know if that's a you, uh, a, a your title or or Drew's. Usually, when he's on on, he's usually spends a bit of time and comes up with really good titles. But this idea of yeah, you know, are we deciding to stop work or are we just deciding how we can do work better? Whether that's easier or safer or I don't think stopping work for safety crews from reading your findings distinguish between stopping work for oh there's not enough hours in the shift so if it's a six hour job i've got three hours left then i'm stopping because i can't finish it or actually this is going to take me half the time tomorrow if i get a different piece of equipment here than i've got today so i may as well do something else today and do this job tomorrow when i've got the right thing so this sort of dynamic collaborative planning that just is going on all the time in the completion of work and the stopping work for safety is kind of muddled up inside all of that dynamic planning activity by the by my interpretation of some of your findings. Yeah, and I completely agree. And and what I also find interesting about it is that um, all these questions, well, almost all of them, uh, they only partly relate to safety. Yeah, you know, if if it's easier done with a different tool, then yeah, it is probably safer to do it tomorrow with a different tool. Um, if you want to do it, a, or if it's currently next to a busy road and you think the road is going to be empty uh, in the well midday or at night, then you can hand over uh, for that. If it's easier done by a bigger team, then you hand over for that, which is not immediately or not only a safety concern, but it does lead to safer work conditions. Probably a couple of them were yeah less safety related, like um, trying to avoid cutting off water during dinner time, which mostly is about uh, providing a good service to the community which uh, I have to say, I, w I was really surprised with how high that was uh, for the operators a concern, that they were constantly reflecting about how much they were interfering with the lives of the people around their work area. And I think we see that definitely in a lot of utility organizations, whether it's water utilities as in, in this case, or whether it's uh, electrical utilities. I think those organizations exist with a very deep sense of care and purpose about providing those essential services into into communities and they take that the provision or the continuity of the provision of that that service very seriously uh, and in fact we see that sometimes compromising their own personal health and safety 
Uh, and I think in your paper, it was reflected in stories about how under fault conditions, work would continue when maybe under planned conditions, it may not actually continue in the same way. I'm not 100% sure if we, I covered that in this paper, but uh, it's definitely something I've seen working with other utilities companies. So I, I completely confident making that claim. No, there was a story I think about how when in an example, which I interpreted to be that, and, and I may be wrong, about how when the planned activity, they would carefully dig up the grass and put it aside so they could work it out. But under fault conditions, they would really uh, move and, and work in a, in, a, in a different way, which I interpreted as being a bit more maybe hurried, maybe pushing forward, maybe making some more work-related compromises that they might otherwise have just deferred that job to a different point in time. Yeah, like I said, I, I can't immediately imagine, uh, remember the story, but it's, it's, it's definitely the case. Like I, I've, yeah. Completely confident supporting uh -huh. that claim. That's okay. So, other findings, uh, Yop, that you want to talk about. So, this this idea that 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 stopping work happens as part of everyday work and and much more regularly than we probably think that it does. And these stop work decisions are not so much about stopping, but they're about how best is work going to be done now or or in the future. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned earlier about procedures, you know, create spark considerations, but they don't actually dictate actions. People interpret these procedures in very different ways and they uh, impact individual actions in, in different ways than we might otherwise think. So are these are these sort of the broad areas of findings? Do you want to say any more about any of those? Yeah, well, that, that's definitely the big, um, yeah, the big findings that, um, first of all, compared to the current interventions we see around stop work uh, decisions, which is like authority to stop work uh, policies, uh, assertiveness training, they all paint this picture of a really significant decision that people need support on. And while I saw that at least plenty of stop work decisions are considered basically insignificant and people make them without a second thought about it. And then the the second part of what you alluded to is indeed that, yeah, it's not about stopping work. You know, it's not about decision is made, then we have safety or we don't have safety. It's about, uh, okay, this is a condition of work, how we're going to deal with this, uh, you know, how we're going to continue work uh, doing this. And then, yeah, finally, the procedure part. Uh, procedures do seem to have an influence um, and they can definitely lead to a consideration, but it doesn't stop people reflecting on the first one or the second, the previous point that it is firstly a reflection on how work is done or should or is best done. Yeah, so you, I wouldn't mind putting you on the spot and getting your reflections from outside your research because I think some of this, uh, I mean, you're very familiar with crew resource management literature. You've written a, you've written a paper about, um, you know, how crew resource management took off outside the cockpit. And so when I thought coming into this area about authority to stop work, I thought about how, say, a pilot makes a decision that I'm not going to take off today because of the weather. And that's a big decision. I've got 300 people in my plane that want to go somewhere and I've now got to decide that I'm not going to take this take off with this uh, with this plane. So some of the, or I'm going to shut down this nuclear power station because I see something on the control panel, so I'm going to shut it down. So I think some of the literature is has these examples of stopping work that that are quite big, that feel like quite big decisions. So how do you reconcile some of the things that you maybe found with your research? Do, do you think some of these things transition across into those other? other areas or what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, very, very, very good point you raised there. Um, I think it's, well, considering those stories and um, I think we should acknowledge that there's probably a lot of difficult stop work decisions as well. 
And I'm definitely not making the claim that every stop work decision is easy. I'm making, uh, I'm trying to open people's eyes that there's this whole area of stop work decisions we're basically not even considering. And well, what I at least expect uh, is that by probably organizing work differently, we can make sure a lot of the difficult decisions can be avoided and keep them in the easy space. If you can keep them in a space of framing how work can be done rather than how work can be stopped. I love that. I, I love your description there and, and just thinking as and reflecting as I was I was listening to you. It, it, we lift and shift a lot in safety. We take something out of one domain and we think it holds true in a in a different domain and then that's our management approach. So we might think about uh, you know, this this aviation example of authority to stop work and how difficult these decisions are. And so a lot of effort goes into the assertiveness training of the co-pilot and a lot of effort goes into companies with giving the authority of pilots to not take off. In those environments, we think probably procedures do dictate actions. If something's not right on a pre-flight checklist or a minimum equipment list or, or a certain weather threshold, then the procedure probably does dictate a lot of actions about stopping that activity. And then we go, great, we understand this now. Now we're going to go into a day in, day out utility organization and think that the world works the same way. And I think what you've opened my eyes to is that, uh, you know, if we take that expectation of work as imagined and overlay that into the business, we can drop something into our business that really doesn't do anything to help what, you know, the situation that our people actually face and actually might make it harder for them to do what they need to do and a lot of misplaced effort, which we'll talk about when we get to practical takeaways. So is that kind of how you see maybe like, because some of your findings, I'm not sure, just in my discussion then, uh, I'm thinking in different domains, the findings might be quite different. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. I, I do expect that in almost any domain, there will be this section of, of currently unacknowledged stop work decisions. Uh, but what they exactly look like will be very, very different. And uh, how big that space is. Uh, will also be very different. And yeah, part of uh, what I think really uh, contributed to the situation here is that uh, the way work was planned and delegated basically was distributed across three different groups, uh, which was the schedule and dispatch. There was a part of uh, the supervisors of the operators that, that supplied some help and then the operators themselves. And uh, yeah, all of them were well acknowledged and had their had their part to play. So I think that that probably will make it easier compared to, uh, let's say, a setup where there's a supervisor who directly hands over the job. And, and in that case, you have a more one-on-one -on -one tension rather than something that diffuses across multiple people. Yeah, that makes a lot of a lot of sense. Let's talk about practical takeaways because I think if if listeners are like me, when I was reading your paper and and even when I was just hearing myself talk and listening to you in this episode, I'm most of it makes intuitive sense once you've revealed it and a good netho a good ethnography and a good uh sort of article of on ethnographic research sort of paints a picture of the world where you can go okay i can see that to be the case and i think these descriptions about okay well yes it is about replanning work and uh if i can hand it on to someone else and yes i've got a procedure but if i can't do anything about it then i may as well just get the work done and all these things that we've spoken about just make you know make sense to me but what does it mean for organizations? What what should organizations do now if our listeners are sort of listening long going, yep, that makes sense. That sounds like my organization. Uh, what what should they be thinking and doing? So, yeah, 
I think the main strategy that, that my paper uh, alludes to is making it easier for work to continue or to phrase uh, or view um, an operation to stop work as work to continue. Because in that case, it will be a decision that's less significant and easier to make. So if there are specific hazards, let's say where you're afraid uh, that people will continue work under, can you develop dedicated tools or dedicated teams, for example, to, to take over when that hazard appears, as in thinking of asbestos? If there's a dedicated team within an organization to deal with asbestos jobs, then I think a lot of people would be willing to stop if if they can just hand over to that team. You know, then they go like, no, this is actually what the organization expects me to do. It's clear that I shouldn't be pushing on here. Yeah, I like that. Rather than just a generic, stop work if you consider it to be unsafe. Uh, for, for a number of those foreseeable types of situations where uh, collectively with the frontline crews, you can make a determination about work maybe not being the best way to be approached with, you know, in the standard standard way because of particular hazards, like you mentioned, uh, having ways for them to just seamlessly hand that off uh, to sort of pass it forward, if you like. And I like the way that you also mentioned having options that crews can arrange themselves. I, I like yeah. that because what we found when we researched is if they had to explain it to a supervisor or ring a call center or talk to someone else and go through a process to make that happen, that was just another barrier to, you know, to just pushing on. Yeah, and uh, I, I actually think that that alludes to, uh, let's say, an unanswered question in the in the research right now. Uh, if we look into safety culture, the current view is that you need to have an open uh, open culture where people can, uh, well, share things. And in that sense, you would expect that people uh, communicate the reasons why they stop work. But what you alluded to and what I also somewhat found is that uh, not having to explain yourself actually helps a lot. So while that's not directly counter to an open culture, it's not immediately the same thing either. No, exactly right. Uh, I think uh, it, it may. It sounds like a, a great idea to have this open culture where everyone can say anything, but I'm not sure that exists or ever will exist inside organisations. I mean, it doesn't exist in families uh, where where people will just openly say. Uh, explain themselves and their and make themselves vulnerable all the time. So, I think we need to have strategies that match the reality of organisational life today, as opposed to our desire for some kind of organisational life which doesn't exist. Well, and I, I think beyond beyond let's say the the impossibility of the culture, I think you also should recognise that it's often quite hard to phrase exactly why you're doing something. I uh, you know. Going out with, with a lot of people in the field, I generally view my own job as trying to translate what people in the field do and uh, how they, how they, why they do what they do. And I see them as a, well, the most important source, but I do expect that they can't perfectly phrase it themselves and that it, it needs my effort to interpret uh, why they do what they do. And so, so in that sense, it, yeah. The idea that we can always just explain why we do what we do, I think, doesn't hold up in reality. No, that's a really good point. One of the other uh, practical takeaways that I took out of reading this is that this idea that you mentioned about making stopping work or this idea of stopping work feel normal. Uh, so it's not a special card around someone's neck. It's not a once in every year type event. It's something that 
is integrated and part of everyday work. We we incorporate it in training. Like you said, your reflection earlier about uh, people saying that it's the sign of a good operator, a good practitioner, someone who knows when they need to stop something, pass something forward, request additional resources. So making that stopping work be not something as a, oh, you failed for not being able to do your job, but making stopping work be something that we train people in and, and we show as a sign of a good of a good operator is that i mean there's lots of ways organizations could approach that but that feels like a good thing to do yeah no no completely agree yes and, and in fact yeah that the general strategy of keeping the the decision to stop work feel easy and keeping it uh framed around this is how how to do work or how work should continue and um, and in that sense yeah making it part of the operator's uh training is completely fits in with that strategy so i think if you're if you're in an organization and and like uh, Yop said, from a literature point of view, it doesn't matter what sort of safety approach you believe in. I think most, well, if not all approaches, think it's a good thing for people to do to stop work if they're faced with an unsafe situation. The traditional strategies for that uh, have been around the having procedures, so sort of prescribing when work can and can't proceed, and then also having uh, training, assertiveness training, authority to stop work permission from the CEO for any job in the company and those types of things. So this, uh, these procedures and, and training about these big stop work events. And I think the alternative that Yop, your research is painting is that, well, that might not be true in all domains. It might not be true in your organization. And if it's not true in your organization, then stopping work might be integrated and part of every day in day out work. And rather than those other strategies, you might want to work out how you can make stopping work feel more normal, how you can include it in training, how you can create uh, alternate work strategies that crews can work with and integrate and arrange themselves. Uh, and that might be a better use of your safety management effort than um, some of the other approaches. So is that summary feel close to the mark of your paper, Yop? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would probably slightly tweak it in that I say, I expect that both is always true for every organization. And then there's always going to be a couple of examples of very difficult stop work decisions. And there's, I expect in any organization, plenty of, of easy stop work decisions. But it is definitely true that within different organizations, different industries, one might be more relevant than the other one. Great. Thanks, Yop. So today we asked the question, how are decisions to stop work made? And so, Yop, you're the expert now in, in this. What's, uh, what's your answer? Well, uh, to link it back to the uh, title of the paper, I would say there are decisions on how work is done. Yeah, as we've discussed, at least most of the time. Great. Thanks, uh, thanks, Yop. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions, ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. <laughs>